A quick note before we begin. This episode includes discussions about suicide. Please take care while listening. If you're struggling with your mental health, help is available. In the US, you can contact Mental Health America on 800-273-8255. In the UK, the charity Mind is available on 0300-123-3393. In the last episode, we heard how afraid Ovik Banerjee was to share his concerns about the downtown project and how devastating it was when those concerns were dismissed. It's not the only occasion someone spoke up about the project, only to feel unheard and unsafe. Throughout my reporting, several people have shared similar stories on the condition of anonymity. One local told me about being reprimanded after voicing concerns about the downtown project. They said a representative told them off, saying that their comments had upset Tony. Another person shared how DTP representatives urged them to inform another local, who had been publicly critical of some initiatives, to be quiet. Now note that these people didn't even work for the DTP. For all the downtown project's rhetoric about community, for all the talk about Zappos being the happiest company, for all of Tony's famous writing about creating company cultures where people could be their real selves. In my 15 years as a journalist, reporting on everything from corporate wrongdoing to sexual abuse, I've never found it harder to get people to talk. People are wary of the consequences, be they intimidation or legal action or they simply don't want to revisit bad memories. As Anondo, Ovik's brother, said, There was a weird amount of fear for a place that was supposed to be unicorns and sunshine. And I think this culture of fear has a lot to do with what sends the downtown project into freefall. So, where were we? In 2014, as layoffs and closures sent his former devotees packing, Tony jumps ship from the downtown project. For a while, he lays low. But soon, Tony will again find himself at the centre of a toxic culture, defined by a similar brew of suspicion and silence. And this time, there's no escape. I'm Nastran Tavakolifa, and from Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci, this is The Cost of Happiness. Episode 6 alone in Utah. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.
After stepping away from the downtown project, Tony Shea swaps his luxury apartment for a tiny caravan in a trailer park in downtown Vegas. He shares this with his pet alpaca and refers to the park as Lamaopolis. During the next few years, Tony is conspicuously quiet. Zappos continues to do well, and Tony makes the odd media appearance to discuss his business philosophy. But there are no grand announcements to change the world. Maybe Tony's given up on his lofty ideals. Maybe the problems in Vegas have led to a reality check. But then, at the beginning of 2020, Tony suddenly moves to Park City in Utah, a snowy mountain town best known for its fancy ski resort. Tony is familiar with the place. He was a Park City regular, attending the Sundance International Film Festival for years and making friends in Park City. But this time, he isn't here to catch films. He's checking himself into rehab. He went to rehab at one of the celebrity rehab centers in Park City. This is Megan Morris, a writer for Business Insider, who followed Tony's time in Utah. Now, as we've heard on numerous occasions, Tony has long had a thing for alcohol. The culture of the downtown project was heavily defined by drinking and partying, and alcohol flowed freely in the Zappos office. But what was once seen as a carefree indulgence was in recent years becoming increasingly worrying, as was Tony's drug use. Friends and family, at least those who knew him for a long time, were very concerned about some of these habits. Tony, it seemed, turned to substances to ease his crippling social anxiety. But it was getting out of hand. Friends and family were extremely concerned about his mental state as well as his physical state. Because he was using so many nitrous oxide containers, commonly referred to as whippets, um, as well as ketamine, uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms... Nitrous oxide, also known as laughing gas or whippets, gives users a quick high. Friends of Shea claimed that he was using up to 50 cartridges of nitrous oxide each day, often during public appearances or meetings. He told one of my sources that he was doing whippets to try to train for a trek to Mount Everest, simulating the lack of oxygen one would feel on Mount Everest. His problems intensified when he began abusing ketamine, a powerful dissociative anaesthetic, it led to hallucinations and delusions of grandeur. Shea believed he could transform into animals and other objects, download talents to his brain, and manifest water. So, after a two-week stay at the rehab facility in Park City, Tony manages to get clean. He loves the scenic town and decides to stay a little longer. But Tony Shea, being Tony Shea, he soon grows restless. In the spring of 2020, he started buying up properties across Park City. Is he onto his next project? Tony had purchased seven properties around the Park City area, and the crown jewel of that property portfolio is this Crescent Ranch home, a 17,350-square-foot mansion on a private lake. Now, the selling price for this was $12.5 million, but Shea paid $15 million for it. That's two and a half million. It had a horse ring. It had a little kind of private beach with a small lake or a large pond. He would host bonfires there. These are not tiny little condos. Think big mountain chalets where he invited friends, family, and even strangers to stay with him for days, weeks, or months. As we know well, 
Tony has a knack for drawing people in, so he quickly fills his new abodes. These people came from all corners of the universe. He invited a magician in, he invited uh, entrepreneurs from New York City, and longtime friends and family. His guest list skews rather young. He was quite fond of the energy of youth and tried to, even in Las Vegas, keep a lot of young people around him. So he convinced a, a cadre of teenagers, people who were 18, 19 years old, to quit their jobs, forgo university. And together, they made up what he hoped uh, would be a collective of artists and entrepreneurs working to make the world a better place. He would invite people to stay, um, sometimes permanently. These were people who were at least enticed, if not completely bought into Tony's vision of creating this kind of mecca in Park City. Sounds eerily familiar. He had done a lot of work in Las Vegas to put people around him who he thought could create fun collisions, people who were entrepreneurs and artists and big dreamers and partiers and all sorts of people. And he wanted to do the same thing in Park City. He had this kind of vision for creating a utopia in Park City that he could hopefully expand to other cities um, under the brand called 10X. 10X, a sort of hospitality business come members club for creative people and entrepreneurs that could be replicated across the country. But this time, without the noble drive to change the world that the downtown project had. Keep in mind, this is not a city that's traditionally suffered from economic disadvantages. We're talking about one of the biggest movie festivals in the entire world where celebrities come every year, $200 a day ski passes, homes that regularly sell for many millions of dollars. As he's developing his plan for 10X and entertaining his many guests, Tony is endearing himself to the community. Remember, this is the spring of 2020. He became kind of an angel to businesses struggling during the pandemic. Keep in mind, this is pre-vaccines when restaurants were really struggling. So he donated money to lots of local businesses. He would place big orders at restaurants and things like that. So he really helped the Park City community. But while businesses love him, Park City's residents feel differently. He was surrounded by other very wealthy homeowners who had bought their properties for a peace of mind and a sense of tranquility among the woods. Now they had a neighbor moving in who was throwing huge parties, sometimes nightly. They were concerned by the noise and also by just the gatherings during the pandemic. Amongst the constant festivities, Tony starts abusing alcohol and drugs again. What is clear from my reporting is that within months of being discharged from that rehabilitation center, he began using again. And also, his mental health seems to steadily deteriorate. Though he's surrounded by supposed friends, he feels extremely isolated, and his behavior becomes increasingly erratic. He had, um, at one point, all of the faucets and showers running throughout the house to simulate the sound of waterfalls, thinking that that would help with his sort of inner tranquility. He appears to be in serious distress. He also, at one point, and this is, speaks to his mania, left piles of trash everywhere around the house, saying that it would incentivize people to think better about how they cared for the earth if they saw the trash all around them. Journalist Paul Bradley Carr reported that Tony went on a 26-day alphabet diet, in which he would only eat food starting with a single letter of the alphabet each day. By day Z, he was essentially fasting. He was becoming emaciated. He wasn't eating, he was staying up all night. He told some of my sources that he was trying to beat sleep, so trying to figure out a state in which he wouldn't need to sleep at all. 
and he was becoming increasingly withdrawn from the world around him. It is clear that Tony is in trouble. Does anyone in his newfound community in Park City try to help? He gave his friends and business partners commissions of some of the projects that they dreamed up for him. And very few of them, at least according to longtime friends that I spoke with, seem to have Tony's best interests in mind. Many of his relationships appear to be tied up with money. The others around him were really benefiting from Tony's checkbook. He wrote big checks to convince people to stay. He even offers someone $1 million to set his alarm clock. Tony Shea paid these people sometimes double or triple their salaries at their previous jobs to quit their their jobs and move up to Park City and spend all of their time kind of catering to his every dream. And the power dynamic between Tony and many of his new young friends does not leave much room for intervention. 18 and 19-year-olds are not as worldly as perhaps some of their, their older counterparts, so they would likely not be as inclined to try to put any checks and balances on Tony's behavior. I think they saw a really playful, spirited kind of mentor in Tony, and they didn't think much of Tony's use of nitrous oxide and other drugs when they were around him in Park City. They thought it was the trappings of a quirky, rich guy, uh, not a perhaps a sign of something darker and deeper going on. Increasingly, Tony simply surrounds himself with yes-men. Tony had a long-time habit of icing out people who um, tried to confront him, but I think that there were two layers here. Um, Tony was trying to keep his inner circle, and then they, in turn, were making sure that their jobs and their kind of source of income and fun would be protected by keeping people out who might try to stop the party. One of the people who's iced out is Tyler Williams. He'd been one of Tony's closest friends, but was ostracized after trying to keep Tony's ketamine supplier away. Anyone who spoke against him was quickly shunned from his circle, and he even kept a running tally of, of who was close in his circle, how they were stacking up against each other. Tony hires a security team to monitor who can come in and out of his Park City compound. So people who were not in his inner circle were sometimes physically barred from even seeing him. Tony Shea's family or some of his family members came to his home in Park City multiple times to try to talk to him, but some of the dozen security guards that he and, and his lackeys had hired physically stopped them from entering his property. Writer Tom Perotta is a friend of Zappos employee Rachel Brown, said to be Tony's girlfriend at the time. Tom recalls this period in an interview on Las Vegas television. I received an invitation from Rachel Brown, who also works at Zappos. I believe she's Tony's right-hand go-to. But she also plays cello in, in Pop Strings Orchestra. And I've known Rachel for years. She said, hey, um, I'm in Vegas now. Why don't you guys just come up and get out of the heat? Just hang out do some hiking, because we hadn't seen each other since March. Perotta visited Tony's home in Utah in 2020 and remembers being on a tight leash. There wasn't any kind of partying going on. And of course, the place was heavily um, fortified with security. I mean, everywhere you went. If you went for a walk anywhere, you know, there was somebody standing somewhere. Even the police struggled to get past Tony's security force. Neighbors lodged several complaints with the police who would come and investigate, but who typically did not talk to Tony because they were stopped by his security guards or by his lieutenants. 
I think that they knew the right things to say to the police. And Tony keeps finding new ways to cut himself off. He at one point did a digital detox where he swore off all digital devices. Everyone in his home communicated through post-it notes. And that made it extremely challenging for those who loved Tony and were concerned about him to get any messages through to him. Despite all this, some do try hard to get through to Tony. 1422 Empire Avenue is having some sort of a breakdown. In June 2020, a friend calls an ambulance after Tony breaks several things inside the house and threatens to hurt himself. He shows signs of psychosis. Tony Shea did go to the hospital in the summer. He got sort of a baseline checkup and was evaluated by medical professionals. But ultimately, if a person doesn't want to get help, and particularly if they have almost all the world's resources at their fingertips, I think it's very easy to push that help away. The hospital visit doesn't seem to make much of an impact. But around this time, Tony's close friend Jewel Kilcher, better known as the singer Jewel, also attempts to intervene. As someone who is not on his payroll, was perhaps one of the few at that point independent voices in the summer of 2020 trying to get Tony some help. She wrote him a letter talking about how uh, he was going down a very dark path and she really feared for his safety and his future. Jules sends Tony a letter via FedEx, since he's off email and text as part of his digital detox. I'm going to be blunt, she writes. I need to tell you that I don't think you're well and in your right mind. I think you're taking too many drugs that cause you to dissociate. If the world could see how you're living, they would not see you as a tech visionary. They would see you as a drug-addicted man who is a cliché. That's not how you should go down or be known. The people you're surrounding yourself with are either ignorant or willing to be complicit in you killing yourself. He and his lieutenant seem to have disregarded that note. The Wall Street Journal reported that they placed sticky notes around it, mocking the tone of the note. In August 2020, Tony Shea officially leaves Zappos. Tony doesn't specify why he's leaving, but rumours circulate that he was asked to step down due to his chaotic behaviour. A few months later, he and a few friends decide to take a trip. In November 2020, Tony and some friends, including Rachel Brown and his brother Andy, were going to Puerto Rico. They were going to celebrate the birthday of one of Tony's friends. After Puerto Rico, they were planning to travel to Maui and Hawaii. The trip took a, a more melancholic turn because when they were in Puerto Rico, Tony's beloved dog, who he had viewed as kind of a spiritual guide, died. This has a huge impact on Tony. So the group paused their travels and returned to Rachel's house in the coastal town of New London, Connecticut. Their plan is to bury Tony's dog before continuing to Hawaii. On November 17th, 2020, Tony and Rachel get into an argument over a mess in the house. 911, what's the location of your emergency? It's nearly midnight. Pequot Avenue. We need help. They're supposed to leave for Hawaii tomorrow. Okay, okay. man, where in the building is he? Down 14. It's a house, it's a house, it's a house. Rachel asked Tony to leave the house until their flight the following morning. Rachel, Rachel. Okay. Rachel. Instead, Tony goes to a storage shed attached to the house. Okay. So storage unit outside the house? Yeah, it's connected to the, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Suddenly, there's a loud explosion. Smoke starts spilling from the shed. And the room's on fire. We can't get in. Rachel, you're saying the code is 1014. Rachel, Andy, and his friends try to get Tony out, but they can't open the door. Two persons trapped inside. We're not getting a response from him. Tony has locked the door of the shed and shut himself in. Person barricaded himself? Yes. Why did they barricade themselves? They're trying to hang themselves? Finally, firefighters arrive and break down the door. They find Tony unconscious, lying on a blanket. He's quickly taken to a nearby hospital and then airlifted to the Connecticut Burn Center. Over the next week and a half, doctors try to save him. But on November 27, 2020, 46-year-old Tony Shea is pronounced dead. We want to get back to our top story tonight. Zappos co-founder Tony Shea has passed away at the age of 46. We turn our attention now to the tragic death of former Zappos CEO Tony Shea, made even more tragic by the fact that the 46-year-old had just agreed to attend a rehab facility the night before he died in an accidental house fire in Connecticut. The death of the business world's happiness guru reverberates far and wide. He was this visionary leader who had invited other world leaders, executives, um, free thinkers to visit him in Las Vegas and understand his very funky way of doing business at Zappos. But suddenly, this popular image of Tony is completely shattered. People expected that he would continue to go on and do great things, not that he would die in this kind of untimely and tragic death. With his death, the world encounters a man who seemed to have secretly struggled with addiction and mental illness for years. I think in the, the ensuing weeks and months, as more details about his death begin to emerge, there's a lot more soul-searching among Tony's confidants and, and those who had been his confidants in the past about no one person could have stopped Tony. His family tried, but I think friends still harbor a sense of guilt about how he spiraled, particularly in the last year of his life, and their role or lack thereof in helping or preventing that spiral. Friends I talked to sounded a little bit guilty to me when they reflected on their time with Tony and particularly during the pandemic, the fact that they hadn't done more to reach out. Several people also told me they tried to contact Tony and never heard back, or that Tony suggested meeting up only to stop returning calls. The cause of the fire in Connecticut remains a mystery. Discarded cigarettes, unattended candles, a propane heater and nitrous oxide have all been put forward as potential theories. And then, of course, there's the question of why. Was this an accident, a mistake, an intentional action? We may never know for certain what exactly happened that night. Following his death, the Shea family refrained from commenting on the cause. They say their focus, now and in the foreseeable future, is on working to continue Tony's legacy. Not long after, things get messy. $523 million. That's the size of Tony Shea's estate, and lots of people want a piece of it. Various people come forward to demand the money they believe is owed to them. Tony left a very difficult estate to untangle. He was not married, he had no children, so he's no obvious heirs. He did not have a will. 
and instead he had a series of post-it notes around his Park City mansion detailing various contracts, if you can call them that, and payments to people. With promises of deals written on post-it notes, lawsuits and recriminations start to fly. 13 investigates reviewed the court record and found more than $130 million in claims filed by a combination of about 10 individuals and companies. In February 2021, Jennifer Mimi Pham, Tony's assistant and self-described right-hand person, sues his estate. The largest come from Jennifer Mimi Pham, Tony's longtime close friend and personal assistant. Pham's claims add up to more than $90 million, $75 million of that from expected earnings from a film production company and documentary streaming platform. In August 2021, Tony's father Richard and brother Andy hit back. They accuse Pham of, quote, preying on Tony's vulnerable drug adult state, end quote, to exploit and squeeze him out of millions in his final weeks. Then, lawyers for Tony Lee, Tony Shea's longtime friend, accuse his brother Andy of plying Tony with drugs and alcohol and manipulating Tony to divert millions of dollars towards Andy. Eventually, Jennifer Pham and the Shea estate drop their claims against one another. As part of a settlement agreement, Pham, in fact, pays the Shea family $750,000. But the disputes continue. Another longtime Shea associate, Susan Bailson, who owns Wealth Collective, filed a claim for nearly $9 million. Then there's Mark Evansvold, who filed a $30 million claim based on a handwritten, nearly illegible post-it note he calls a contract. Evansvold claims he was to relocate to Park City, Utah, with a promised $450,000 annual salary and a signing bonus that would include 20% of Shea's interest in the restaurant chain Nacho Daddy. I've asked everyone I've spoken to for this story how they make sense of Tony's death. 95% of the people that Tony hung out with took advantage of him. Paco Alvarez, the Vegas curator Tony hired to work at Zappos. We see it with a lot of wealthy people that they have this entourage. They wanted the free ride. They wanted his money. And Tony was left vulnerable in that case. He wanted people to be happy. Natalie Young, the Vegas chef who received investment from Tony, also sees the destructiveness of Tony's circle. As long as a, a drug addict, alcoholic has enablers, we'll die. You have people helping you have that behavior, you'll die. The only time I got sober is when there was nobody left, when I burned it to the ground and nobody would help me. But when you have that kind of money, you're always going to have people around you. And we've seen it over and over again in our country. We're fascinated by watching people fucking destroy themselves. And it's super sad. And I'm tired of it. And it's, you know, it's not necessary. And where are all those people, you know, that were protecting him and keeping everybody away that wanted to help him get sober? Where are all those people? They were enabling him to have really poor behavior. And how do you live with yourself? And, and probably not even taking responsibility. Like, fuck, maybe I should have done things differently. Maybe I should have walked away a long time ago. Maybe a paycheck should have been more important to me than somebody's actual life. Um, you know, it's super sad. And But we see it over and over and over and over and over again, you know? Like, you know, Amy Winehouse, uh, Whitney Houston, um, Anthony Bourdain. You know, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. I think I was maybe the most sad because I felt like 
I didn't expect Tony to die at a young age. Owen Carver, a former employee of Zappos, feels, as many did, a sense of what if. I also was not fully aware of the sort of more dangerous, like, drugs and stuff that he was involved. I didn't know about his addictions. I knew he was a guy who partied really hard, but I didn't know he was in, like, such a troubled spot because I hadn't really interacted with him much in the last, like, two years before he'd passed. But I felt like, you know, what if I had done something different <laughs> in my life? Would that have affected it? Because I spent a lot of time with all the people who were around him and who were also major influences on him and just super close to him. Maybe if I'd have done something different, would he still be alive? You know, and I think also there's this tragedy of not just him, but also like this thing that's bigger than him, which is what he was really, I think, trying to cultivate when he was really himself. And there was this, uh, the tragedy of someone with all these resources and all this power not being able to continue to strive to try to make his dreams into a reality, which I think ultimately were like, try to really make significant positive change in the world in some way. I mean, I found out reading the paper and it's really sad, just really sad. Josh Levine, the Venture for America fellow who worked for the Downtown Project for a couple of years. I hadn't been in touch with him or, or most people at the project for years at that point. And also it wasn't shocking. It wasn't like, oh God, how could that happen? I didn't know whether he was an alcoholic or struggled with drug use or things like that, but the amount of intoxication happening that he was a part of when I was there, it didn't feel like wildly off base that something like this could happen, but that didn't make it you know, less sad or upsetting. Tony was a really, I think, sort of deeply human-oriented person who really did care about people and wanted to help people have great experiences and live great lives. And even more than that, like, just being in person with him, he was a weird, lovely person. Like, just one of those people you sit with and you're like, you're a genius. But perhaps the structure of Tony's life, the place his genius took him, was untenable. I think the fundamental business model where one person has access to a giant amount of money and thus has all the power to make all the decisions and doesn't really have anyone in a position where they can actually say no or where there's any shared decision-making now seems like a pretty obviously bad business model. Although I guess if you have a benevolent person, it's possible that it could work, which I think we are a benevolent person who really knows what they're doing and is really good at it. But I think that's a really hard position for one person to be in. And then there's champions of Tony's philosophy of corporate happiness, like Jen Lim, who with Tony co-founded a consulting company based on Tony's principles. For her, his death prompts some serious soul-searching. Of course, everything was unexpected, and I was reeling from it, and I wasn't quite sure how to address it or process it. Now, in retrospect, 
I am able to see how personally challenged I was to ask myself all these things that we've been doing for all these years. How are they still true? And what is my true belief system based on everything that was hurt and lost during that year? Yes, of course we want to be good leaders, but what are we doing for ourselves? Indeed, across the tech world, Tony's fate is a wake-up call. I think a lot of entrepreneurs especially saw this tale and reflected a lot on their own trajectories, on the choices that they were making or are making, and what that would mean for not just for their businesses, but for their own state of mind. Megan Morris. Entrepreneurs like Tony Shea have to work incredibly hard to get where they are. And then once they achieve some success, I think it's hard to understand how the trappings of that can impact your closest friends or would-be friends. What Tony found, I think, in particularly in recent years and even manifested through the ways that he pushed people out was that people are very attracted to wealth. That's a, a tale as old as time, one that's not unique to tech, but in an era where there have been many, many billions made on the West Coast through technology, I think it's a story that echoes even more and, and perhaps rings louder. I think there are some universal takeaways here about people's levels of accountability and the impact that wealth can have. With his passing, Tony's legacy hangs in the balance. What was the real source of Tony's lifelong quest and zeal for finding happiness and connection? How does his impact continue to be felt in Vegas and beyond? Shea's family has filed a notice of sale for more than 100 properties in downtown Las Vegas. And his business philosophy, his approach to company culture, his belief that happiness is the secret to success. What do we do with all of that? What do we preserve? And what do we discard? Now, what does it say about a society that someone who has achieved everything we're told to achieve in order to have that happiness, have that fulfillment, is so deeply miserable that they spend their days just trying to numb themselves? That's next time on The Cost of Happiness. The Cost of Happiness is a production of Imperative Entertainment and Vespucci and is reported and hosted by me, Nastran Tavakolifar. For Imperative Entertainment, the executive producer is Jason Hoke. For Vespucci, the executive producers are Daniel Turkin and Johnny Galvin. The series producer is Charlie Towler. The story editors are Mira Sharma and Matt Willis. Thomas Curry is the managing producer. Audio recording by Tom Berry at Wardour Studios. Audio mix and sound design by Charlie Brandon King. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.